0: All right. Is it ready, or is it starting? Okay, sounds good. Oh man, it really, really, really empties out quickly. (laughs) Well, I'm wondering what your goal in life. is what are some life goals that you might have? You know there are lots of different life goals that we can have. Some of us have goals of things that we can get. Right, that's a common life goal for many people. How many cars you can have, or, or how nice of a car or maybe uh, to have. A really nice home. I know there's some people who have multiple homes that would rather have fewer homes. Uh, and, uh, sometimes those can be a drain. Maybe for us, it's guns. Maybe for us, goals that we have is to have as many toys as possible. As they say, those who, you, the one who dies with the most toys wins. For some of us, our life goals are not so much about things that we can get, it's more about experiences that we can have though, right? Things that you get to do, memories you can make, places you can go. There's people who want to be able to do something that makes their life feel meaningful because they get to do something unique and special. Some of us, our life goals are not so much things-based or or experience-based, but they're more relational. Some of us have life goals about getting married or, or having kids or, or seeing your grandkids, things like that. And, and those are lots of different goals that we can have. I'll tell you a couple goals that I had growing up when I was a very young child, about four or five. Um, they, they might seem a little bit odd, but remember, this is four-year-old Adam talking. So I had three life goals that I had. The first goal was to have <coughs> the false teeth. This was four-year-old Adam's goal in life because i thought it was just the coolest thing to be able to actually pop your teeth out and in i just thought that would be the coolest thing in the world and i would love for that to happen not so much a goal right now but it's probably going to happen anyways at some point in time a second goal that i had a four-year-old adam had was to have a mobile home and that was something where like, when, when, when I was talking about that back then, what I pictured, when I said that to my parents, that's what I wanted, was I was actually seeing a, a house on a highway that was on a flatbed truck, like half two halves of a house going on two trucks being carried from one place to another, and I, that was what I pictured in my head. I thought, how cool would it be if I could have a house that I could literally pick up and just move to a different spot and set down and I can live wherever I wanted with different houses. It's kind of like, now the, the version of that that would be for today would be the tiny house thing that you might see on some of those shows. I think that would be a lot of fun. Not with our kids. Sometime when our kids are gone, I could not stand living in a tiny house with like 300 square feet with three children. Um, 300 square feet, that's like smaller than this platform up here, isn't it? People. People. Anyways, third goal that I had was actually a weeping willow tree. Hey, Dan, do you think real quick I could have the volume turned down just a little bit? Yeah, that's a little loud. Sorry. Third goal was to have a weeping willow tree because when I was growing up, I I always sat in the same place with my family in church. They would bring me to church every single Sunday. Every Sunday we would sit in the same pew uh, and and seats, and I would look outside and I would see this giant, magnificent, like 60-foot-tall, weeping willow tree just swaying back and forth in the wind. It was kind of mesmerizing. I kind of stopped listening to the pastor sometimes as I was getting mesmerized by it, but it was something that I wanted. And so at least one of my life goals has been achieved. Praise God for that. Um, but those things are not so much what really make life meaningful when I look back on it are they? and I would say not so much that any of those other goals we might initially think our bucket list or of things that we want to have things we want to do even our relationships none of them will be truly satisfying so I can ask a question What life goals lead us to the most satisfying life? And how do we get there? Romans chapter 8, verses 27 through 28 tells us that God works all things together for our good, for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. And He tells us in those verses that we have been called, we have been foreknown, predestined, justified, and glorified to one end, to be conformed to the image of Christ. We have been all things, God says, He works together for our good, To make us look like Jesus. Actually, I have a better way of saying that than to simply look like Jesus because when we think of it like that, my goal is to look like Jesus. I can think of it as as something I really need to strive for to make sure I am doing out of my own strength. There's, There's room for that. But I think what's even better is that when God made you and me, He made us for a purpose—to bear the image of God, to display God to the world. It's as if if I were to stand away from you, you couldn't see me, and I forgot my mirror from home. But if I were to take up a mirror and hold it up, you would be able to see what I look like through the mirror. We would be reflect. The mirror would reflect my image to you. And that is what we should be seeking to do as well. I think that there is no greater life goal for you and for me than to look like Jesus. So how do we get to that Christ, that lifelong Christ-like goal? That is by practicing Christ-like grace with others. Practicing Christ-like grace with others is one of the very best ways that we have to display the image of Jesus. Grace is a really interesting thing. Grace is something that we commonly understand as as receiving from God. But what does it mean? It means, whether it's what God does for you and me or what we are called to do for each other, grace is refusing to give what I deserve and choosing to give what I don't. It is, or turn that towards you, is whether it's from me to you or from God to you, it is refusing to give what you deserve and choosing to give what you don't. It is refusing to protect myself at your expense and choosing instead to give myself for your sakes. That is the essence of grace. God calls us to trust in His grace, but the more that we trust in His grace, the more He calls you and me to display Him to one another. And toward that purpose, God has given you and me and every single one of our brothers and sisters in Christ the best possible place to learn to show grace. You know what place that is? That place is when He, from the moment that you trusted in Him, said, I'm going to place you into the body of Christ. He said, I want to take every believer and I'm going to put you into a church, a gathering of your brothers and sisters in Christ who are just as broken as you, but they have a common understanding of the grace of Jesus. And that is the very best possible place for you and me to learn what God's grace for us means and how to show God's grace to others. There is no better place to learn to display Christ than in the church. Today we're going to review three ways to show this grace. Well, next three weeks. On this step of the faith path called practicing grace with others, we're going to learn three ways to show grace. That is through proactive love, reactive love, And protective love. And today we're going to learn to practice grace with others through proactive love. Incredibly important, this step. Foundational for the health of every church that is out there. Before we keep going, I actually want to continue in prayer. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your grace that you have shown us. Help us to understand your truth. Help us to live our lives not out of how we can earn what you have given us, but to take what you have already given us freely, and to show it to others. In your name, we pray. Amen. I think that a relationship can be compared to a garden. You see, in the rest of the world, nature grows wild. It just does whatever it wants. But in a garden, a person will take specific plants and cultivate them for maximum benefit, right? Whether it is for food or for beauty, this is what the purpose of a garden is for. And when we compare... The different kinds of love, especially reactive versus proactive love, this is why I want us to understand. Reactive love can be compared to fixing what's wrong in a garden. If you find bugs that are not supposed to be there or rodents or weeds, and you say that's not supposed to be there and you take steps to remove them, that is reactive love, fixing something that's wrong. Proactive love, however, can be compared to giving the plants the best possible chance to flourish and grow. For a garden, that means removing the the grass around it, laying down fresh soil, spacing the plants apart just so, laying down mulch and water, etc. This is what proactive love looks like. And as any gardener can tell you, the more work you put in at the front end for your garden, the less work you're going to have to do later on to fix things that go wrong. There are three things for us to learn about proactive love. Proactive love doesn't focus on me. It does focus on others. And proactive love is optimistic. We're going to be taking a look at where each of these things come from in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You see that I highlighted a couple things because I simply don't have time to talk through everything in 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 8, but I picked them out specifically because I made a distinction here between proactive love of what I do regardless of whatever is going on and what I do in response to difficulties, like patience or envy or being irritable. Those are things that I might do in response to someone else. But these other things like being kind, not boastful, not arrogant, those are proactive love ideas. So this is what we're going to be emphasizing and focusing on. First, let's take a look at how proactive love does not focus on me. There are a couple things I highlighted here. Primarily, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul describes love as something that is not boastful and is not arrogant. Love is not boastful and love is not arrogant. It doesn't focus on me. We want to focus on ourselves sometimes, don't we? We want to look at ourselves and say... I want to make sure that when I come, I am being served, I am getting what I need. And that's reasonable. Right? Because we do have needs. And so it's difficult to, to, to on the one hand, say, I shouldn't be focusing on my needs, but at the same time, I do have needs that need to be fulfilled. Right? Here's how I like to think of it. When I talk to my kids... And they're fighting with each other because they all want something for themselves. And so they say, I'm going to get what I want, even if it means at the stake of the other two. I say to Bree and Arlie and Brenerty, I say to them, all right, any one of you, if you are looking out for your interest and so is everyone else, how many people are looking out for your interest? Only one, right? But let me tell you, what happens if each person starts looking out for the interest of the other two? over and above themselves and the other two do that suddenly rather than only one person looking out for their interests there's two and in our family of five if i look out for the interests of tamara and all three kids tamara looks out for me and all three kids and so on and so forth how many people are looking out for my best four tell me just numbers why which numbers wise which is better four or one people looking out for me anyone four this is what it's meant to be. This is what the church is meant to be. Romans three twenty-three through 24 tells us, gives us a proper perspective of ourselves. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but they are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. We know that we have received grace. We deserve nothing and we got everything. What room is there for arrogance? What room is there for boasting in our achievements? The first step to practicing grace with others, you guys, listen to this. You get nothing else out of this. Listen. The first step to practicing grace with others is to realize that we have been shown grace. Because when we understand the grace we have been given, it teaches us, first of all, about our unworthiness of God's love. It grounds us in our unworthiness of love. And that's a good thing. Let me explain why. Because when I know how unworthy I am of love, of God's love, how much am I going to demand that you be worthy of mine before I give it? When I know how unworthy I am of my love, I will not demand as much that you be worthy for me to love you. But the second thing grace does, it doesn't only ground us in our unworthiness of love, it grounds us in the love that we have received from God so that I don't have to depend on receiving love from you in order to give you love because God's love for me, which is boundless and endless, always fills my cup so that I have something to give. The more we understand grace from God, the more we are able to give it to others. So proactive love does not focus on me. But it does focus on others. 1 Corinthians 13 also tells us that love is kind, it is not rude, and it is not self-seeking. Not rude means it doesn't dishonor others, doesn't seek to find ways to actively harm other people, to belittle them, to undermine them. But that word kind can be used I looked up that word to sound smarter. It can be used to describe being mild or being useful. But not, and if you want to think about what that means, that sounds kind of like someone who's a servant. Not everyone wants to be a servant, but it's different when you're motivated by love. You know, there's actually a really great um, example of this that is to be found from one of the best movies ever. We're going to show a little clip of what kindness out of love Is this a kissing book? Princess Prize is one of the best movies that is out there. I'm surprised I have not shown more clips from that. All right. There's something about kindness that is done when it is done out of a motivation of love. That makes it different. When you choose to serve others out of love, when then people... People can understand Jesus' love through you. You know, there's one better example than that of focusing on others, and that is John 13, when Jesus was just about to have His last meal before He would be arrested. And it says that Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew all those things. And he also knew where he was coming from. He knew where he was going. He knew who he was. And so, what did Jesus do, do knowing that he was about to be arrested, and condemned, and killed as painfully as possible? He got up, he put wrapped his robe around him like a servant, and he began to serve people in the most humiliating way possible by washing feet. He focused on others. Brother, sister, if you have believed in Jesus, you can know who you are. You can know where you came from. You can know where you're going like Jesus. And you too can have a love that doesn't need to focus on yourself because you know of the grace of Jesus, but you can focus instead on other people. This is what we do. This is what we're called to do. This is what being in Jesus on a practical level is about. So those are two things that love is about. Proactive love doesn't focus on myself, but it does focus on others. But finally, love, proactive love is optimistic. Where do you get that, Adam? Why do you say that's optimistic? Take a look at 1 Corinthians 13. It says that love believes all things and love hopes all things. That sounds rather confusing, doesn't it? But if you look at, take a look quick at what Paul wrote in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 1. I'm not going to go ahead and read all of that, but you can read through that now and in your own time. Paul says to them, when I think of you, I thank God for you every time I think of you and all of my prayers for you. I am thankful. And he gives two reasons. First of all, he says, because of something they are doing, because of their partnership in the Gospel. But secondly, he says, I am thankful for you because I am confident that He, the Father, who began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus when He returns. When we think of Optimism. We can think, we can tend to think of it in terms of a TV show optimism. Now, you watch a TV show, and most shows will introduce a problem in the first five minutes and conclude the problem, fix it by the end of the show, so that everyone's happy and they kind of return to the status quo. If it's a really bad problem, it might take two episodes. What God calls us to is not a TV show optimism not a short-term optimism. Because you know what? Sometimes you get hurt in a way that seems too great to be fixed. Or sometimes the other person seems like they're never going to repent and turn back. And sometimes you look at that and you're like, I, I'm not sure that things can be fixed. But you and I are given a perspective in Jesus Christ that we could not have apart from Him, that allows you and me to be optimistic. He gives us the gift of a long-term perspective. Because guess what? At the resurrection, you will receive a perfect body. You will be freed from all elements of sin in your life. All hint of it. But not only that, you will see everyone else who has trusted in Jesus and you will find that their bodies are, both, are fixed forever and their sin is gone forever. You can know with confidence, with certainty, That at the resurrection, all of the brokenness of all of your relationships with every single brother and sister in Christ will be absolutely, perfectly healed and whole. That is the perspective that we are given. So you know what that means for us? That means every positive moment you have with a brother and sister in Christ will only be built on for all eternity. And every moment of brokenness between you and a brother and sister in Christ will be healed for all eternity. How does that change the way that you think about your brothers and sisters? How does that change your perspective on them? I don't know about you, but for me that allows me to have an optimism that allows me when I when I think about it, when I understand the grace of Christ, to change the way that I think about other people, to serve them, to love them. God, in His overflowing grace, He knew you and me at our very worst, and He paid the highest price for us. And He works tirelessly to love you and to love you and to love you at your highs and at your lows. This is His grace. And He does this until you can know and trust and enjoy His love and reflect the image of it, the image of Him to the rest of His creation. Proactive love. Taking the first steps is not something for one or two people at church to do or three or four. This is something for every single one of us to be involved in. We are all gardeners in the body of Christ to develop and cultivate the soul, the soil, the soul of the soil, of our relationships. So maybe you've been afraid to risk stepping out into a new relationship. Maybe it's time to stop seeing it as a risk and to start seeing investing in someone else, someone that you had not been investing in before as an investment, just that. Maybe it's time to stop waiting for someone else to take the first step. And maybe it's time to start, just not with everyone, Pick one person and take the first step to actively build a relationship with them. Proactive love is something that we are all invited to do. We're not challenged, do this or else. We are invited into the joy of the benefit of this. God's grace is meant to be received and it's meant to be proactively shared. So let's join God in sharing grace with the world, beginning right here with one another. Al, can you come up as, as we prepare to share for a time of communion? And as, as Al comes up, as always, this is something that we invite everyone to. We share this grace with other people out of the grace that we have received from Him.